From the day he signed on to direct the 22nd Bond film, Mark Forster knew that he was signing up for a punishing schedule. Six months of pre-production, a 23-week shoot, a six-week edit, and the film out in cinemas by November 2008. And on top of all of that, the script when he signed on was not the movie that he wanted to make, so he knew from day one that he was in for a pretty hefty rewrite. Forster and his writer Paul Haggis had six months to carefully doctor the script, changing the plot and its politics to match the story they wanted to tell while still delivering big set pieces in locations that had already been locked down. But four months into this six-month rewrite, the Writers Guild of America went on strike. Paul Haggis could no longer touch the script, and neither could any writer who ever wanted to be part of the Writers Guild. The only people who could work on the script under the strike rules were Mark Forster and the film's actors, who were allowed to workshop scenes and change lines as part of their standard creative process. This is where the story about Daniel Craig rewriting the film comes from. In a 2011 interview, Craig admitted that he'd had a crack at the script, saying, quote, There was me trying to rewrite scenes, and a writer I am not. The mental image of Daniel Craig sitting in his trailer bashing out new pages on a typewriter is captivating. Maybe he's got a little glass of whiskey and his sleeves are rolled up, but it's probably not a very accurate image. It's more likely that Craig and Mark Forster were going through the script in rehearsals and on set and realising that lines and character choices just didn't work. And instead of being able to bring in the film's writer to come up with a solution that matched the tone and style of the rest of the script, they had to come up with those solutions themselves. This was not the first Bond film to shoot during a writer's strike. In 1988, the Writers Guild of America went on their longest strike to date, just as Michael G. Wilson and Richard Maibaum started work on the script for License to Kill. Maibaum was a Bond veteran who'd written the screenplays for Dr. No, Goldfinger, From Russia With Love, and basically every memorable Connery and more Bond. And when the Writers Guild went on strike, Maibaum put down his pencil. But Wilson, who'd co-written four Bond films with Maibaum, kept working through the strike. He finished the script for License to Kill alone, and he never wrote again. Instead, he took over the Bond franchise with his sister, Barbara Broccoli. 20 years later, Michael G. Wilson, strikebreaker in 88, was the producer of Quantum of Solace. Now, I'm not suggesting that Wilson encouraged anyone to do scab work on the script for Quantum during the strike. But on an unrelated note, here's Quantum cinematographer Roberto Schaefer speaking in 2021. Unofficially, we were all kind of collaborating on writing scenes and helping as we went on because the writer strike had gone on, oh, had right. started. Yeah. So nobody was allowed to really write anything mm -hmm. technically, <laughs> but things were being you know done because we didn't have a full script. Um, we started when the writer strike happened and we did not have a full script at that point and it never really, you know, it evolved as we went on, mm -hmm. which made it tough. The 2007 writer strike started two months before the 22nd Bond film started shooting. Usually, you'd want to have your script pretty locked down eight weeks before cameras roll, especially if those eight weeks include Thanksgiving, Christmas, and New Year. Even more so if your first weeks of shooting are in studio, where all your sets need to be built from scratch and where you're likely to be doing big chunks of dialogue. Eight weeks before shooting was also when Daniel Craig started his stunt and action training for Quantum. So again, you'd want to have a pretty good idea of what you were training for at that point. 
But the Bond 22 script really wasn't finished when the strike started, for reasons that we covered last episode that boiled down to tight deadlines, a change in directors, and no one ever wanting to use Neil Purvis and Robert Wade's script. There's actually a bit of uncertainty about how much work Paul Haggis really did on the script before the strike. Haggis has said that he wrote two drafts and did a couple of polishes, but Mark Forster put it pretty differently. He was, in the meantime, he was very busy because he was working on his own film, The Valley of Elah. He was a little, had very little time, but he gave me a draft. But it was a first draft and it was unfinished. Uh, and we try, and then a writer strike was coming. So when we were starting to shoot the movie, we really didn't have a finished script. I also want to clarify, when Forster says the script wasn't finished, it's not like it just stopped on page 68 or anything. What he means is that the ideas in the script weren't fully developed. What we're talking about here is the part of screenwriting that takes a lot of time and thought. The slow processing of how to best weave together all the disparate parts of the story into a cohesive narrative that will make sense in the final cut, even though it's being assembled across months and multiple countries in tiny chunks. According to Michael G. Wilson, the last three months of pre-production on a Bond film usually involves the writer refining the script and meeting with the director and producers on a daily basis. But instead, for the last two months of pre-production on Quantum of Solace, no writer could touch the script. And when cameras rolled in Pinewood on the 7th of January 2008, there was no end to the writer's strike in sight. No one knew it at the time, but on that first day of filming for Quantum of Solace, they were already more than halfway through the strike. This is Striking Out, a new season of Going Rogue about the 2007 and 2008 writers' strike. I'm your host, Tansy Gardam, and in this episode, we're going to be covering the production, the uncredited rewrite, and the legacy of Quantum of Solace. So, about that title... When cameras first rolled on Bond 22, the film still didn't have a name. The slates just read B22. Paul Haggis's draft had been called Sleep of the Dead, and the franchise had stopped using Ian Fleming's stories as film titles back in 1989 with License to Kill. Some modern Bond titles were extrapolations on Bond mythology, like License to Kill, or Ian Fleming mythology, like Goldeneye, which was the name of Fleming's Jamaican estate. Some titles were silly, like Tomorrow Never Dies, which either came from a misprint on a fax or someone misreading a fax. Story goes that one of the potential titles was Tomorrow Never Lies, a reference to the Tomorrow newspaper in the film, but when the list of potential titles was faxed to MGM, Lies was read out as Dies, and the rest is mediocre Bond history. Tomorrow Never Dies, by the way, also didn't have a completed script when it started shooting. But Casino Royale had gone back to Bond basics. It was based on Fleming's first Bond book, which, for complicated legal reasons, the Broccolis only got the rights to in 1999. And since Casino Royale had been a hit, Michael G. Wilson and Barbara Broccoli decided to mine Fleming's back catalogue for the sequel's title. There wasn't much there, just a handful of short stories. Risico, 007 in New York, Property of a Lady, and Quantum of Solace. Quantum of Solace is an unusual Bond story because James Bond just kind of 
sits there and gets told a story about a messy divorce by a local colonial governor who was only tangentially involved in said divorce. It's often described as introspective, and while Bond does have one or two thoughts throughout about the nature of violence and how what he does really isn't anywhere near as cruel as what people can do to each other, it's really not introspective because it's not about Bond at all. It's also just painfully overly intellectual. The quantum of solace that the title refers to is this theory that the governor has that a marriage can survive anything so long as the people involved still care for each other. But when that basic care and humanity is gone, when one person obviously and sincerely doesn't care if the other lives or dies, then according to the governor, the quantum of solace stands at zero. It's a very complicated, high-minded way of saying people who hate each other shouldn't stay married. It's also very casually racist towards Japanese people in passing and Nigerian people in excruciating detail. Reading it today, Quantum of Solace is very nearly a damning critique of 1950s British gender roles, where married women are expected to have no life outside of the home and men are expected to have no emotions, but I don't think that's what Ian Fleming intended to write. The only thing that the short story and the film have in common is the title. A title that Michael G. Wilson admits he only chose a few days before he announced it, on January 24th, 2008. Which means the film had already been shooting for three weeks before that title was chosen. The studio executives at Sony and MGM were all a bit sceptical about the name until they saw a mock-up title treatment where the O's in Of and Solace were lined up with a 7 to form 007. Seriously, that's what sold them on the title. Many critics and even creatives on the film would later interpret the title as being about Bond's search for a quantum of solace, a tiny piece of comfort or a reason to keep going after Vesper's death, which, aside from anything else, is almost the opposite of the title's meaning in the short story. The title was instead awkwardly folded into the film by naming the villain's evil secret organisation Quantum. And when I say awkwardly, I also mean barely. The idea of a secret evil organisation called Quantum featured heavily in the promos, plot summaries and marketing around the film. But most of the film's villains just refer to Quantum as their organisation. The word Quantum is actually only said twice in the film. I'm not sure that the Tierra project is the best use of Quantum's time. I told you what you wanted to know about Quantum. And both times? you don't see the speaker saying it. This suggests to me that both of these mentions of quantum were probably ADR, which are additional voice lines added during post-production. When done well, ADR is pretty hard to clock. It's incredibly common on films, so I can't say with any certainty that these are ADR, but they have all the hallmarks of it. Here's the wider context for the one time that Green mentions quantum. You promised that you... Let you go? I answered your questions. I told you what you wanted to know about Quantum. Yes, you did. And your friends would know that, so they're probably looking for you. The line where Green mentions Quantum plays over a shot of Bond, and the conversation still fundamentally works without it. You promised that you... Let you go? I answered your questions. Yes, you did. And your friends would know that, so they're probably looking for you. It's possible that Green's organisation was meant to remain nameless, like it did in Casino Royale, 
But I have a theory, which I can't entirely back up, but this is my podcast, so let's do this. I think that rather than a new organisation copying Spectre's homework, Quantum of Solace was meant to originally feature Spectre itself. This is for a couple of reasons, but let's start with the book. In the book of Casino Royale, Vesper was being blackmailed by Smirsch, which was a real Soviet group of intelligence agencies, which Fleming slowly phased out in his books and replaced with Spectre, just in case the Cold War ended. But Fleming didn't come up with Spectre on his own. He brainstormed the name along with ideas for a Bond film with the film producer Kevin McClory. When that film didn't get off the ground, Fleming just took all of those ideas from the brainstorm and published it as the book Thunderball. And Kevin McClory successfully sued and got the rights not just to Thunderball, but to the concept of Spectre. That's why Spectre appears so inconsistently across the Bond films. McClory licensed the rights to Cubby Broccoli for 10 years, but jealously guarded them for the rest of his life until he passed away in 2006. Right when the Broccolis were kicking around ideas for a sequel to Casino Royale. A sequel that involved Bond hunting down the secret organisation that had blackmailed and ultimately killed Vespa. Casino Royale had been a throwback to the original Fleming Bond, and being able to introduce Bond's classic nemesis in the second film would have continued that return to the books, even if Bond 22's plot was completely original. Dominic Green probably wasn't intended as a direct Blofeld equivalent, but he brought the evil mastermind into a new age, the same way that Daniel Craig had modernised Bond. And to be fair to Matthew Amalric, who plays Green, his performance is great. Green makes you viscerally uncomfortable just on his rancid vibes alone, no facial disfigurement required. But you can also imagine him being welcomed into philanthropist and environmentalist circles because he has the cash and wears a suit and talks the talk. If Quantum was made now, there'd probably be a throwaway joke about how Green's dad owned an emerald mine in South Africa. When Kevin McClory died in 2006, the rights to Spectre and Thunderball passed to his family and estate, who would eventually make a deal with Dan Jack, the parent company of Eon Productions. They handed over the rights for an undisclosed sum in 2013. But I think the Broccolis might have assumed that they'd be able to get those rights in 2007, and when they couldn't, the evil organisation at the heart of Bond 22 had to be renamed. Again, this is just a theory that I have. I can't back it up with anything more than a timeline and source material. But given that Dominic Green and Quantum are revealed two films later to have always been a part of Spectre, technically on a narrative level, it's true that Quantum was a stand-in for Spectre. I just think they might have been more of a stand-in than intended. The Quantum of Solace shoot started at Pinewood Studios in the UK in January 2008. Here's Daniel Craig on the set in the first month of production talking about how the shoot was going so far. We've shot a few of the sort of dialogue sequences, which was kind of unusual. And it was nice. It was nice to sort of start with some some, some meaty dialogue sequences. Uh, you know, kidding myself that it was going to last. He was kidding himself. During that interview, he was actually standing in front of the art gallery set where they were about to start filming a massive aerial rope fight. But before that, he and Judy Dench really did film some meaty dialogue scenes, like M calling Bond out in a Bolivian hotel for chasing vengeance at all costs and getting Agent Fields killed. 
This was also when they shot the scenes at MI6 headquarters, which had been completely redesigned from the claustrophobic wood-panelled look of Casino Royale into a glass-and-steel Apple store kind of vibe. And I want to focus in a bit on one of the MI6 scenes that was shot in the first month of production during the writer's strike, because I think it's pretty symptomatic of a shooting script that was a few drafts short of final. It's from quite early in the film, and it's a bit of a bridging scene that explains why Bond now needs to go to Haiti. This particular note from Mitchell's wallet may be of interest. We introduced tagged bills into the chief's money laundering operation by intercepting illegal payoffs. We trace money through several of his bank accounts around the world. It's pretty thin. Are there eight money changes hands? You could probably find a tenner in my wallet with a tag. That's true, Mum. A single bill could be a coincidence, but what about a whole stack? These bills, from the same series as Mitchell's, were just scanned at a bank in Port-au-Prince, Haiti, deposited in the account of a Mr Slate. Even in the film, M sounds unconvinced by the script's reasoning. It was pretty thin. And to be fair to the film, this is easily the most convoluted bond-you-must-now-go-to-next-location scene in the script. And that could be a result of where it sits in the story. It's after the opening, but before the plot really kicks in, so it just kind of needs to get Bond on the road. But even after watching it several times, I'm not sure I understand how this connection works. Especially since when Bond does follow this lead, Edmund Slate turns out to be two people. There's a geologist who works for Green who is selling information to Camille, and an assassin who's pretending to be Slate in order to kill Camille on Green's orders. So the real Slate was getting paid with cash from Le Chief's money laundering operation by Dominic Green for his work as a geologist, because Camille wouldn't have had access to the laundered money to pay him off unless she stole it from Green. It also doesn't help that within the film, Bond follows this lead and finds fake assassin Mr. Slate and kills him before also pretending to be him in order to meet with Camille, who thinks that he is geologist Mr. Slate, but then Bond opens Assassin Slate's briefcase and finds a gun and a photo of Camille, assumes that Assassin Slate is there to kill Camille. Camille then kicks Bond out of the car and goes to confront Green, who reveals that he has killed the real geologist Slate, separate to all of this. It's just messy. And like many things in Quantum of Solace, it suffers in comparison to Casino Royale, where the ellipsis text message is a clean, legible MacGuffin for Bond to follow and is also paid off in the airport bombing scheme. But in Quantum of Solace, this money and Le Chief and even the name Slate never comes up again. But a major plot point hinges on documents Camille apparently got from the geologist off screen 40 minutes and three countries and a speedboat chase later. By early February, the Quantum of Solace crew had moved to Panama, which was doubling for both Bolivia and Haiti, which are two very different countries. Now is as good a time as any to mention the questionable choice to cast French-Ukrainian actress Olga Kurilenko as the Bolivian intelligence agent Camille Montez. The initial casting brief called for a Latina actress in her late 20s, preferably from a South American background. But the casting director on Quantum of Solace was Debbie McWilliams, who'd done eight previous Bond films and was also one of the casting directors on 2007's Hitman. Hitman is probably best remembered as the movie Timothy Oliphant did to pay for the house that accidentally got Deadwood cancelled, but it was also one of Olga Kurilenko's first major roles. And according to Barbara Broccoli, 
Debbie McWilliams thought Kurilenko was so special and unique that she insisted the producers see her for the role of Camille, even though she was not Latina. The role of Camille was eventually adapted for Kurilenko. There's a throwaway reference to the fact that her mother was Russian. Kurilenko is also significantly more tanned in Quantum of Solace than she was in other films from the time, and that was deliberate. Here's hair and makeup designer Naomi Dunn. And with Olga, we wanted to exaggerate the colour of her skin and bring it out and give her a real South American look. I don't want to sound like an asshole, but you know who really does have a South American look? South American actors. While the Quantum of Solace main unit were in England and Panama, Dan Bradley's second unit were in Mexico, filming an aerial dogfight between Bond and some bad guys. This was one of four big set pieces that Mark Forster wanted in the movie, and since the film was all about the environment, so were the action scenes. I was thinking, okay, I want to set an action sequence in all the four elements, like water, fire, air, earth. So, so that's what's sort of my idea. One of Dan Bradley's real specialties as a director is car chases, and the dogfight functions really well as a kind of 3D car chase. He often hems the planes in with mountains to contain the action in the same way that a road would contain a car chase, but also a car can't suddenly appear above or below you. I'd actually argue that the dogfight is better than the car chase that opens the film because there's this added element of Bond not having total control over the old DC-3 he's flying, and there's a real chance of mechanical failure that just ratchets the tension up for the whole scene. You also get some really good moments of Bond's competence, like when he uses the smoke from his own failing engine to blind an enemy pilot. It's simple stuff, but it sits with a couple of other moments in the film that show Bond as a genuinely good secret agent. Dan Bradley had a crew of 66 in Mexico, shooting the flying elements of the dogfight scene. But the skydiving sequence that ends that fight was shot in the UK with Daniel Craig and Olga Kurilenko in an indoor skydiving tunnel. This had the advantage of actually simulating the air pressure of a real freefall on Craig and Kurilenko's faces, but the disadvantage of needing a complete background replacement. And since the tunnel was a functional indoor space, the lighting of a full desert sun was impossible to recreate. So despite all of that realistic air pressure on Bond and Camille's faces and bodies, it's really obvious that they're in front of a digital background. And I know this sounds really picky, but I genuinely don't think that it would matter as much or be as noticeable if this whole very technically good action scene was actually in service of something. The enemy aircraft interrupt Bond and Camille on their way to the mysterious Tierra project. There's a bit of action, then Bond and Camille freefall into the exact sinkhole they're looking for and find the dams that Green is building to create artificial droughts. The dogfight is perfunctory. And I know it sounds insane to complain about a narratively superfluous action scene in a Bond movie, but here's an honest question. Did you remember that there was a dogfight in Quantum of Solace? Of all the four big action set pieces, the water boat chase, the fire finale, and the... I think the opening car chase is Earth. Either that or the foot chase over the Sienna rooftops, I'm not 100%. Either way, of those four big set pieces, this dogfight is the one that moves the plot and the characters the least. So it gets forgotten. So much of the action in Quantum of Solace is like this. It's big, it's excessive, it's expensive, and there's just so much of it without a solid narrative purpose that it just kind of washes over you. And I think it's worth remembering that Dan Bradley took a pass at the action scenes in the script while it was being written. 
And if you were Mark Forster, already pressed for prep time and handing over script pages to a second unit director, you'd want him to just focus in on the action, not worry about the delicate balance of plot and character arcs throughout the narrative. It's quite likely there was a plan for Paul Haggis to do another polish of the script, better integrating these action scenes into the rest of the film. But once the strike was called, he couldn't. The Quantum of Solace crew started shooting in Panama on the 7th of February, 2008. Five days later, on February 12th, the writer's strike ended. And we will get into the how and why of that later in this series, but for now, let's just stick to Quantum, which was six weeks into its 23-week shoot when the strike ended. In an April 2008 interview on set, director Mark Forster claimed that the strike had no impact on Quantum, saying, quote, Paul and I and Daniel all worked on the script before the strike happened. The only problems I had with the script were shooting in April, May and June. So as soon as the strike was over, we did another polish with someone and it worked out. Putting aside the fact that this was a press interview promoting the film, when he said this, Forster hadn't even finished shooting, let alone editing. In 2009, after Quantum's release, he was able to speak with a bit more clarity. And it was just, it was a very, you know, it was an interesting journey for me, but it was definitely a, a lesson learned that you need, a, you need to start off with a strong script in your hand. You just can't start pre-production and, yeah. and trying to wing it as you go along. So when we were starting to shoot the movie, we really didn't have a finished script. And uh, then when the strike finished, I... Ha there's another riot writer I brought in, a very young writer who worked with us uh, more on the script. So it was much more of a, a process. That young writer was Joshua Zedema, who joined the Quantum crew in Panama shortly after the writer's strike ended as Quantum of Solace's final uncredited screenwriter. Josh Zedema was a bit of a wild card. Unlike Purvis and Wade, who'd been writing Bond films for nearly a decade, and Paul Haggis, who was a double Oscar winner, Zetima was a 27-year-old who hadn't actually had any of his scripts produced. He'd had this incredible meteoric rise in the couple of years beforehand. He'd written a spec script called Villain, which was a claustrophobic psychological thriller about two brothers stuck together in the wilderness. And it landed him an agent and a meeting with Warner Brothers. Not to pitch his own movie, but to pitch his take on The Infiltrator, which was an Atlantic monthly article that Warner Brothers had already bought the rights to and they were going to adapt either way. But Zedema's pitch was good enough to get him the job adapting the article into a screenplay. And the script that he wrote eventually landed pretty high on the blacklist, which is a yearly ranking of the most popular scripts in Hollywood, as voted for by anonymous studio executives and assistants. The Infiltrator came in fourth on the 2007 blacklist, and it found its way to Mark Forster. Or at least that's what I think happened. I can't 100% confirm that story, but Forster said he read one of Zetima's scripts and was really fond of it, so when they were looking for someone to do the rewrites on Quantum, he passed that script on to Wilson and Broccoli. So theoretically, he could have read Villain, but given that The Infiltrator is a tight, taut British spy thriller, I'm pretty confident that that was the script that got Josh Zetima the job on Quantum. The thing is, the Infiltrator is also, as Zedema himself put it, kind of an anti-James Bond film. It's about Kevin Fulton, an IRA terrorist who is secretly a British intelligence informant. 
Fulton is a family man who says that he works for the greater good to end the conflict in Ireland, but he also pockets plenty of cash from the British government. For his betrayal, he is betrayed at every turn. The politics are murky, the Brits are the bad guys, and while there's plenty of action, it's homemade explosives and car chases in white vans, not sky lasers and Aston Martins. Fulton also isn't working for MI6. He's part of another British intelligence project, and MI6 are kind of the bumbling idiots of the script. But given that Mark Forster wanted to do a new take on Bond, an introspective film that didn't just take for queen and country at face value, The Infiltrator was a great example of Zetima not just writing action and tension, but also character. The Warner Brothers executives at the time praised Zetima for developing complex male characters in whom danger is always lurking just beneath the surface. So he was perfect to write for Bond. This raises an obvious question. Why did Forster get a new writer in to do the rewrites instead of one of the writers who'd already worked on the script, like Paul Haggis, or even, in a pinch, Neil Purvis and Robert Wade? Well, the answer is boring. It's about availability. In January 2008, Haggis had just started a new production company called Highway 61 Films, which signed a deal with United Artists, who signed a deal with the Writers Guild of America which allowed Haggis and anyone else working for United Artists to write during the strike. It was an interim deal that had a lot of conditions and provisions that the Writers Guild wanted to get in the eventual minimum basic agreement with all of the studios, but it also had a clause that meant that when the NBA was signed off with everyone else, United Artists would end up with the same deal as everyone else. Lot of words there, but in very basic terms, it's like if you were trying to sell apples for 10 bucks a kilo, and all your customers banded together and said, no, that's ridiculous, we'll pay you five. So you don't sell any apples and no one has any apples for a while. And then United Artists sidles over and is like, look, we'll pay you 10 for now so that we can have some apples. But if you end up agreeing with everyone else to sell for seven or eight bucks, we also get that deal. There were a couple of interim deals like this throughout the writers' strike. The most famous was with David Letterman's company, Worldwide Pants, which allowed both The Late Show and The Late Late Show to return to air with writers in January 2008, while other late-night talk shows were still off-air or struggling through without writers. What's relevant to Bond is that even before the strike was finished, Paul Haggis was committed to producing, writing and possibly directing Highway 61's first project an adaption of The Ranger's Apprentice, the fantasy YA book series by Australian author John Flanagan. Neil Purvis and Robert Wade, meanwhile, probably weren't Mark Forster's first choice for the rewrites since he'd basically thrown out their draft when he joined the film, but they were also busy working on a remake of Barbarella. So instead, Josh Zedema joined the production almost as soon as the strike was over, flying to Panama to be on set for rewrites. According to Forster, Zetima just did a couple of polishes and changes. According to Matthew Amalric, who played Dominic Green, there were new lines every day. In the final film, it's hard to pinpoint who wrote what, especially considering that Zetima's job was partly to mimic the tone established in scenes that had already been shot. But Quantum of Solace does have some great lines in it, like this early exchange between Bond and M. The Americans are going to be none too pleased about this. I promised them the sheaf and they got the sheaf. They got his body. If they'd wanted his soul, they should have made a deal with a priest. Trying to work out who wrote what is also complicated by an overlap between Paul Haggis and Josh Zetima's political disillusionment. 
But Quantum of Solace also has a lot of other subtle criticisms of the secret surfaces and their role in the modern world, protecting capital rather than people. There's an entire subplot about the CIA actively collaborating with the film's villain. So do we have an understanding? Uh, yeah. We do nothing to stop a coup in Bolivia, and in exchange, the uh, new government gives America the least standing oil found. Felix Leiter, the recurring Bond CIA character played by Jeffrey Wright, isn't too keen on the deal, and he says as much to his boss, played by David Harbour. You know who Green is and you want to put us in bed with him. You aren't kidding, right? Yeah, you're right. We should just deal with nice people. I need to know you're on the team, Felix. I need to know you value your career. It's not a groundbreaking, world-shaking critique of the CIA, but it is pretty hard-edged for a Bond film. And you've got to remember, the CIA works a lot with filmmakers to ensure that their public image in films is positive. Again, it's impossible to say who wrote what in any of these scenes. But for a film so affected by a writer's strike, Quantum of Solace's script has a surprising amount to say. Josh Zedema wasn't credited as a writer on Quantum of Solace, which could mean several things. If you've listened to the original Going Rogue about Rogue One, you might remember that a writer in Zedema's position would have to be able to prove that they'd written a third of the final screenplay to get a credit. My money is honestly on this as the answer. I think it's unlikely that Zedema rewrote enough of Quantum to get a credit. But even if he had, on a purely hypothetical level, to get a credit, Zedema would have had to initiate a credit arbitration with the Writers Guild of America, which involves giving the Writers Guild access to every story development document and draft of the script, which could have, hypothetically, exposed work done on the script during the strike. I want to stress here again, this is hypothetical. I am not implying anyone who worked on Quantum of Solace worked on the script during the strike except Daniel Craig and Mark Forster, who were allowed to under the strike rules as a director and actor. But considering the general vibe towards the Writers Guild at the time, any writer who kicked off a credit dispute probably wasn't doing themselves any favors with the studios, their potential employers. I wanna stress again, this is all hypothetical and speculative. So I am gonna restate the verifiable facts again. Josh Zenema was hired by Mark Forster and the Broccolis to do a script polish on Quantum of Solace after the writer's strike ended. He was on set for some time, but he did not get a credit. The writer's strike might have ended in February, but the Quantum of Solace shoot didn't finish until June. After the strike ended, the film shot in Chile, Austria and Italy, finishing with another month in the UK, mostly at Pinewood Studios. There had been plans to shoot in Peru as well, but those were scrapped for budget reasons. In total, Quantum of Solace was shooting for 103 days, which, according to Michael G. Wilson, was actually about a week less than most Bond films. The wrap party was held on the 21st of June, 2008. The premiere was on the 29th of October. I mentioned last episode that Mark Forster had less than six weeks to edit the film, which even at the time Forster admitted was nowhere near enough, saying, quote, Normally I've had 14 weeks for any of my films so far. Six weeks for this film is crazy. I wish we could have had more time to craft the film properly. 
For instance, with The Dark Knight, Christopher Nolan had a year to cut his movie, to work on the visual effects, to reflect. I don't have that time, and so compromises have to be made. Quantum of Solace was cut by Forster's regular editor Matt Chesse and Born Supremacy editor Richard Pearson. And honestly, when you know that both the second unit director and one of the editors on Quantum worked on Born Supremacy, it explains a lot. And specifically the Born Supremacy too, which really set the much faster, choppier, shakier style that became Born's trademark. The Born identity has some of that style, but it's really much steadier than the later Born films. Matt Chesse and Richard Pearson's final cut of Quantum of Solace was 100 minutes long, the shortest Bond film on record, and it sets a brutally fast pace. It's 45 minutes shorter than Casino Royale, and all of those slow, tension-building poker scenes were replaced with non-stop action. And that action is fast, incredibly fast, to the point of sometimes being barely comprehensible. We all like to clown on that scene in Taken 3 where Liam Neeson jumps over a fence and in about three seconds there's 12 separate cuts, but that style is much worse over a sustained period. When you're trying to follow the narrative of an action scene but you're just being overwhelmed with information. The pre-titles car chase in Quantum of Solace goes for three minutes and it has about 200 cuts in it. That's an average of more than a shot a second. And the film didn't just need to be edited in this insanely short time frame. It also needed extensive visual effects. For example, half the shots in the film's opening car chase needed fixes, often removing cameras, stunt rigs and crew members, as well as adding in windscreens to several of the stunt cars. And as the cut of the chase kept changing in the edit, the VFX team were also called in to remove or add cars as the flow of the action scene changed. On the upside, Quantum of Solace is probably the first film ever covered on Going Rogue that didn't have any reshoots, because there was literally no time to do them. But in the midst of all of that insanely fast editing and post-production, I do want to give full credit to Mark Forster for what I would say was actually the best decision made on Quantum of Solace. And that's the ending. I mentioned last episode that Paul Haggis wanted the film to end with Bond finding Vesper's daughter in an orphanage and leaving her there. The Broccoli shot that down, so Mark Forster instead went with ending on Bond tracking down both Mr. White and Guy Haynes, a close confidant of the British Prime Minister who had been working for Quantum. This final scene was a real box ticker. When Haynes realised Bond was in the room with them, he asked, who the hell are you, which meant you got a... The name's Bond. And when Bond shot both Haynes and Mr. White, it meant the film could end on a gun barrel sequence. And this scene was filmed in April 2008, but in the edit, Mark Forster realised it was a bit of a hanger-on after the scene before it, which became the film's actual ending and which, in my opinion, is a way stronger ending than either the orphanage or the Mr. White murder. In the final cut, the film ends on Bond tracking down Vesper's traitorous ex, Yusuf Kabira, and stopping him from pulling the same trick on a Canadian intelligence worker. You work in Canadian intelligence? That's all right, I know you do. And knowing this man, I'd guess you have access to some very sensitive material, which you're going to be forced to give up. His life will be threatened, and because you love him, you won't hesitate. It's a beautiful necklace. I have one just like it. You gave it to a friend of mine. 
And this scene works really well because Bond's main flaw in Quantum of Solace is that he just can't stop killing people. He is, as M said in Casino Royale, a blunt instrument. Every time he has a source or a lead, he kills them. And you start to get the sense that this is the only thing he knows how to do. It's probably not meant to be comedic, but Judy Dench's M getting more and more annoyed at Bond's killing spree is kind of funny. Bond, if you could avoid killing every possible lead, it would be deeply appreciated. Yes, ma'am. I'll do my best. Connections and I've heard that before. Over the course of the film, you get a sense of the emptiness that Bond leaves behind, as his friends end up dead just as often as his enemies, and Green even taunts him about this in the film's climax. Sounds like you just lost another one. <laughs> Bond's killer instinct goes to absolute extremes when he considers Mercy killing Camille in the film's climax, when it looks like there's no way for them to escape the burning hotel. But Bond doesn't actually end up killing either of the film's villains. General Medrano is shot by Camille, and Bond doesn't kill Dominic Green. He just leaves him in a very easy place to die. And in that final scene, with Kabira tracked down and about to leave yet another woman in Vesper's position, Bond gets in between them, tells her what's happening, and looks like he's about to do what he does best. Kabira even tells him, Please. Make it quick. But Bond leaves him alive to be questioned by MI6. Is he still alive? He is. I'm surprised. M congratulates him on the character growth and he leaves Vesper's necklace behind in the snow in a series of shots that feel like they were probably added in post. There's no shot of Bond dropping the necklace, just a very obvious sound effect, then an isolated close-up of the necklace in the snow. Learning that killing won't solve all your problems isn't exactly a groundbreaking character arc, but it's pretty revolutionary for a Bond film, and it also fits really well with the Bond that was set up in Casino Royale, who is also probably the closest Bond to Ian Fleming's version of the character. And if they'd kept the original ending scene, that entire narrative arc and all of the character growth would have been immediately undercut by Bond doing another two murders. Quantum of Solace premiered on October 29th, 2008, and it was released widely in the UK on October 31st and on the 14th of November in the States. By the time the film was finished, its budget had ballooned to $230 million, making it by far the most expensive Bond film ever made at the time. If you average it out, it cost $2.3 million a minute. Quantum made a healthy $589 million at the box office, but with its marketing budget, that wasn't as big a profit margin as it sounds. But the film came out as scheduled, meaning none of the $75 million worth of product placement was jeopardised. So the film only had to recoup a $155 million budget, plus advertising spend, which would have been brought down by those simultaneous brand campaigns. But, like everything on Quantum, even the profit margin didn't measure up to Casino Royale, which had made over $600 million on a $150 million budget. Four times return on investment, rather than Quantum's 2.5. Casino Royale also loomed large in most reviews of Quantum. It got a solid three stars from a lot of critics, but it really isn't remembered fondly. The fact that it was followed by the critically beloved Skyfall hasn't helped either. Quantum is remembered as the awkward middle child of Daniel Craig's run, 
written off as that film where the villain wanted to have all the water. But here's the thing. Quantum of Solace is nowhere near as bad as you remember. Sure, the action cuts a bit too fast and some of the logical leaps to keep the plot moving are a stretch, but it's no more stretchy than other mid-grade Bond entries like The World Is Not Enough. Dominic Green's plan to install a dictator, get control of massive water resources and then charge said dictator for that water is less far-fetched than a lot of Bond villain evil plots. Camille Montez is the counterpoint to Vesper that the film really needed. She's an intelligence agent out for revenge on her own terms, her arc intersecting with Bonds rather than being subservient to it. That said, Quantum is not a feminist masterpiece. It feels like all the progress made with Camille had to be balanced out with regression for Agent Fields, who immediately falls into bed with Bond and ends up dead and covered in crude oil. And there's some really gratuitous camera work in a rape scene, and even Camille really doesn't escape unscathed. The audience is constantly reminded by the script that she infiltrated Green's organisation by sleeping with him, which is a thing that Bond does in basically every movie. But compared to the rest of the Daniel Craig Bond era, I'd make the bold call that Camille has more of an arc and more of her own story than any woman other than M. And I know I'm starting to sound like a broken record, but genuinely, the biggest problem with Quantum of Solace is that Casino Royale is just too good. Martin Campbell and his second unit director Alexander Witt were influenced by the newer, faster, slicker style of spy thriller, but they still had a foot in the door of slower, more atmospheric filmmaking. You can probably tell that Casino Royale is my favourite Bond film, and I also think it's objectively the best one. It set a high bar that any sequel would have struggled to meet, let alone one hobbled by a compressed schedule and an unfinished script. There's this temptation when you learn about a film's production to think about the might-have-beens, the other versions of the film that could have existed if circumstances or creative choices were different. I'm absolutely guilty of this. I basically have a whole podcast on it, but I'm not the only one. Here's Quantum of Solace writer Josh Zedema speaking in a similar way about unproduced movies that never got off the ground. See, for every screenplay that gets turned into a movie, there are hundreds that don't. That means there's like an entire parallel universe of unproduced scripts just out there somewhere. Like this whole universe of beautiful things that never were. Zedema has skin in this game. The script that got him the gig on Quantum, The Infiltrator, ultimately wasn't produced. And neither was his spec script villain, or the X-Men Gambit movie he wrote, or his version of the fourth Bourne film, or the spy franchise he sold to Universal, or his adaption of Dune, or his Australian convict thriller Man of Cloth. In 15 years of consistent work, successful pitches, and acclaimed screenplays, Josh Zedema has only been credited as a writer on two finished films, 2016's Patriot's Day and the 2014 reboot of Robocop. But the thing about the versions of films that could have been is that because they don't exist, they're perfect. There's no compromises, no budget restraints, no practical considerations when you're talking about an idea. So with that and everything else we've learned in mind, let's think about the hypothetical parallel universe with the best version of Quantum of Solace. In a universe where there was no writer's strike, because the studios immediately agreed to all of the Writers Guild's proposals, in that universe, Paul Haggis still leaves Quantum of Solace in January to work on The Ranger's Apprentice. 
He has two more months to work on the script in pre-production, which is good, but the film still needs to be edited in six weeks and Haggis isn't readily available during the shoot to fix script problems, so maybe Zedema still gets brought in as a pinch hitter. And that version of Quantum is probably better. But we're talking degrees, not magnitudes, because all the other issues with the film, the compressed schedule, the disconnected action, the Bourne facsimiles, they're all still there. But there's another alternate dimension where the strike still happened, but the Broccoli's got a new director the second Roger Michelle dropped out, in August 2006. In that hypothetical best-case scenario universe, that director had nine more months to make the film than Mark Forster ended up with. And maybe that director used the Purvis and Wade draft, which was finished in May 2007. Or maybe they hung on to Ted Griffin and got him to write a script that maybe could have been done a month or two earlier. In that universe, the script was probably finished before the writer's strike. Maybe in that universe, the director was a writer-director who was kind of ambivalent towards the guild and didn't mind using their director loophole to do some fixes on the script. A thing which many writer-directors really struggled with the ethics of during the strike. Maybe in that universe, Quantum of Solace is as good as Casino Royale. But in the real world, the insanely compressed timeline on Quantum meant that the strike took out any writers for three and a half of the 18 months that Quantum was really made in. You could say that the writer's strike was responsible for that rushed timeline, since Quantum was probably hurried into production as a buffer in case the strike came. But that's a studio call, not a Writers Guild call. And while there are definitely issues with the script for Quantum of Solace, I really wonder how many of them could have been solved with two more months of pre-production scripting. The strike did not help, but it cannot shoulder the blame for Quantum of Solace. And more importantly, when someone says a film was bad because of the writer's strike, you know who's getting the blame? The writers and not the studios who forged ahead into production with an unfinished script. Daniel Craig saying that Quantum was fucked by the writer's strike had a lot of cut through because the writer's strike was an easy scapegoat. And Quantum genuinely seems to have been Craig's least favorite Bond film, possibly tied with Spectre, which was the one that prompted him to say he'd rather slit his wrists than do another Bond movie. But Daniel Craig's feelings about Quantum of Solace are more complicated than just script bad, writer strike bad. Here he is on the Empire podcast in 2021, reflecting on his early Bond years. I, I, I kind of mourned for a while the actor I was in Casino because in Casino, I didn't know any better. So all of the kind of pressure, even though it seemed like there was an awful lot of pressure on me, I just was like, I don't understand that. I just don't get it. You do one and you get some success and you go, oh, shit. And that's a kind of double-edged sword. I kind of sort of sometimes would yearn after the person I was when we did Casino. Too much knowledge sometimes is just a little bit um, not a good thing. And I was sort of, you know, I was, I was sort of in the dark about a lot of things, about the way things work, the mechanics of it, the way the world really viewed Bond and how, it, you know, all of those things I was just, I didn't, I didn't understand them. And, I, and then I suddenly started understanding them and the weight of it sort of probably kind of bore down. And then kind of the troubles, you know, like when we did Quantum was a bit kind of just, it was a bit of a shit show to say, to say the least. Mm. The full weight of it was there. And it kind of, I think, I think that kind of made me probably lock up 
And thankfully, it's just been about, for me, since then, it's just been loosening it, loosening it, loosening it, and trying to get back to that feeling of casino, which is just like, come on, it's James Bond, enjoy yourself. Let's just have a good, let's have a good time. I don't think he's wrong to say that Quantum was a shit show. I just don't think he's only talking about the script. In the end, Quantum of Solace is not even close to the worst James Bond film. It's not even in the bottom 50%. It's not the worst Bond film written by Neil Purvis and Robert Wade. And I'd argue it's not even the worst Daniel Craig Bond. And even if you do really genuinely hate Quantum of Solace, it's disingenuous to blame the writer's strike for all its problems. And because of that, in talking about Quantum, we have barely scratched the surface on the writer's strike. We've really just discussed it as a thing that happened so far, but over the rest of this season of the podcast, we're going to look much more closely at the 2007 writers' strike. And even over this series, we're not going to be able to cover everything. So here's the issues that we are going to cover. Technology and how it changed the way we watch TV. Reality TV and whether or not it's scripted. Animation and why animation writers aren't covered by the Writers Guild. And the future of online content in 2008 and today. To explore all of that, each episode we're going to take one show that was affected by the writer's strike and use it to guide us through the reasons the writers went on strike in the first place. And because this is still going rogue, you can expect a pretty detailed history of each of those shows and some different directions they could have taken, as well as a bit of thinking time about what makes a good show work and a bad one not. So next time on Striking Out, since we've only really covered the strike as a historical event so far, we're going to dig a little deeper into one of the biggest issues of the 2007 strike and one of the shows that was most affected by that issue. We're going to be talking about the internet and the office. Striking Out is a new season of Going Rogue. Written and presented by Tansy Gardam, with editorial assistance from Charles O'Grady and Christian Byers. Our music is by Kevin McLeod of Incompetech and Shane Ivers from Silverman Sound Studios. And our logo uses a photo by Annika Mickelson. You can follow the show on Twitter at goingrogue underscore pod, and you can follow me at Tansy Clipboard. I want to once again give special credit to Matt Field and AJ Chowdhury for their book Some Kind of Hero, and to all the Bond fan sites that did weekly and sometimes daily updates on the production of Quantum Solace.